So we have this simple constructive memo. Number one is make mistakes faster. Again, in the spirit of you're gonna make mistakes, so let's make small ones quickly. And then the other one is rather than debating endlessly in meetings and forming committees to write policies about things, let's take action, let's run the experiment. And part of this has to do with creating an environment where people aren't afraid to try things. If we can, as leaders, if we can pump enough fear out of the room, we keep everybody who works for us in that most human part of our brain, right? That The part that gives us creativity, imagination, innovation, and invention. That is just the tip of the iceberg from an enlightening conversation with Rich Sheridan. Rich is the CEO and chief storyteller at Menlo Innovations, a software design company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And man, does Rich have some stories to tell. You're going to find out how he completely shifted his career gears, all in the name of creating an intentionally joyful culture. Rich will also explain the innovative ways that Menlo approaches its business and how that has companies from all over the country and around the world knocking on their door. Episode 48 of Power Forward with Rich Sheridan comes your way right now. This is Power Forward. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to inform, entertain, and educate. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast series do not constitute legal or other professional advice, opinions, or endorsements of any kind. All right, welcome back to Power Forward. Justin White alongside Mateen Cleves. Mateen, how you doing, my man? Justin, I am flying high. Life is all good, my friend. Well, I am uh, I am really hyped up for this episode today, Mateen, because uh, this guest that we're going to have on the show today is one of the most fascinating minds uh, on the subject of leadership that I have come across. And, and I don't throw that praise around um, you know, lightly. This, this guy really, um, his message, uh, just, just resonated with me. Um, when I, when I first learned about him and read about him and then listened to him on, on another podcast. So, um, we're really fortunate to have him today, Mateen. So, so get your pen out. Oh, I got it. Make sure you take good notes. Gotcha. (laughs) All right. We are, we are very pleased to be joined by Rich Sheridan. He is an entrepreneur. He is a leader. He is an author and he is the co-founder of Menlo Innovations, a software firm which is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And yes, since you're all wondering, Rich is a Wolverine. So Rich, you and Mateen are gonna have to find a way to get along. <laughs> hey, it's easier these days when it's basketball season than <laughs> And who and who would have ever thought that we would say that? But uh but here we are, I guess, uh, you know, bre- breaking new uh boundaries here. Uh in 2021. Uh, Rich, Rich, great to have you with us. Um, for our listeners, um, I, I just gave them the, uh, the the short version, I guess, of your resume, uh, but but tell them who you are and, and what it is you do for a living. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Justin Mateen, wonderful to be with you both. Uh, I am a, the CEO and co-founder and chief storyteller, as we like to say, it actually says that on my business card at Menlo Innovations. And we are a custom software design and development firm in downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, what that means is we build software on behalf of other businesses. Uh, the thing that probably makes us interesting and would have you want to have me on as a guest on your show 
is that we have created a culture very intentionally focused on what we like to refer to as the business value of joy. And joy is central to the leadership theme, to the culture of Menlo, and to the idea of who do we serve and what would delight look like for them. So let, let me and let me jump in on that. So why so why is that? You know, why do you guys focus on the culture? You know, what's what's behind that? You know, for me personally, Mateen, uh, I I'm a technologist at heart. I, I, the first 20 ish years of my career, I wrote code. I wrote software and I thought, man, I, I've landed in the coolest profession ever. It's in high demand. I'm pretty darn good at it. Uh, I think it's going to go on forever because there's software and everything. And, you know, the world saw me as doing really well. And, but the trouble was I saw all this pain, all this suffering. I, I saw budgets being missed and deadlines uh, being blown and, uh, you know, poor quality software going out the door. And I'll admit at first I thought maybe I'm really not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I maybe there's some extra technical skills I need or some extra tools to get things right. But ultimately, I discovered what many others have discovered in their own industries. This is not about technology. This is about how do we organize the humans better? And there's no more powerful force than to be intentional about your culture. You know, every organization, every team has a culture. Most actually aren't intentional about it. They don't think about it. They don't actually define what it is. They don't set expectations for those around them. And I'm guessing in, you know, both of your walks in life, you've seen lots of examples where a strong culture, well-defined, setting good expectations for people and holding them accountable to those expectations produces phenomenal results, kind of life-changing results. And, and that's why culture is so important. I, I think it's fascinating, Rich, because, you know, and it says it right over your shoulder there, choose joy. Um, and, you know, both of your books have that word in it. You've got Joy, Inc., and then Chief Joy Officer. A lot of people, I, I think, when they think about work and they think about their job, joy is probably not one of the first few words that comes to mind. So, it, to me, there's there's a very interesting uh, concept there that, that you have tied your entire culture around this notion um, that we can have joy in the workplace. Now, let's think about our kids. You know, uh, if they're getting on in, you know, in their high school years and they're thinking about going to college and launching a career, what is we as parents hope for them? What, what do we really want our kids to have out of their work life? There's no question that if, if they could have anything close to what we describe as joy, we would want that for them. And the only reason I bring up our kids is sometimes we're too old to, to remember those youthful dreams we all had. And so sometimes I think we have to look through the lens of our younger generation to see what they're hoping for. Because maybe we decided at a certain point, you know what, that's just a pipe dream. We can't have that. I'm just going to go to work. It's just going to be a job. It's a paycheck. I'll, I'll use the money I earn to go do the things that really produce joy in life. But that disconnect 
is what leads to the most depressing statistics in industry, right? The disengagement statistics of our teams of people are like, you know, the people who are counting the days to retirement. I'm sure you've met some of those where they've got little plaques in their office. Like, you know, seven years, 235 days and six hours till retirement. What a terrible way to live most of our waking hours. Yeah, you make a good point there. And and I look at you um, because you talked about the culture and um, I want to ask you a question like, so like, what are some of the things that you look for? Like say, if you're interviewing someone, because I, I talked to, and what makes me think about this, I talked to a leader the other day and he said he missed out. He thought on, on some great potential because he went with someone who had maybe a little more experience, but he ignored the signs. The person with the experience was not a, a team person. The person with the experience was selfish. You know, the person with the um, experience were, was negative. But it was another person that didn't have quite the experience, um, had a great attitude, was all about the team, but he, he felt he missed out on that. So have you ever had a situation um, like that? Or, or what are some of the things you look for when you are uh, bringing people to your team? Yeah, and I've had two different lives here, sort of almost exactly bifurcated now, 20 years of running Menlo, 20 years of doing things kind of the traditional way. And I would say I made that kind of mistake constantly that you're describing in my old managerial life, where, you know, I would try and find this perfect buzzword mania fit for everybody who was joining my team. You know, they better line up on Oracle 9.1.1.3 service pack two, because I don't, I need you to hit the ground running. You know, I want you to be productive on day one. And so I built a hero based organization. You know, I was probably the number one hero, you know, and in the trouble with hero based organizations is, you know, there's no room for growth there. You know, you, the only way to scale those is scale the hero. The only way to scale the heroes is overtime. And then you start burning your people out. They, they stop bringing their full brain to work because they're not being challenged anymore. Now, well, the way we, all of our HR practices, how we recruit, how we interview, how we select, how we onboard. And I will say, if you're going to create an intentional culture and that cultural intention is not present in every one of your standard HR practices, then it's just a poster on the wall. It's just a rah-rah speech once a year. You're going to find out later. It's, it's not actually, there's no intention here. So when we interview, when we recruit, first of all, you know, this podcast itself could be a recruiting tool, right? People are going to hear me speak. They're going to hear the heart and the vision of one of the leaders and founders of the company. And some of the listeners, and, and I will tell you, the, the most we usually get is people regularly send us their children, okay? <laughs> like they have a college-age kid in their lives that is trying to figure out where they're going next. And, you know, their parent hears this podcast and they're telling their kid that night, you want to go work for this guy, right? Because, you know, it's like that desperate scene on the Titanic where the parents are handing their children off and saying, you know, please, you know, it's, it's too late for my career, but save my child. <laughs> but when we interview, uh, we start teaching our culture from the moment of first contact. We have this unusual construct at Menlo where two people work together all day long, sharing a keyboard and a mouse. We're doing it virtually now, of course, because that's safer. 
but they're literally together all day long, working together, sharing a single task. This is our work done together. Those pairs switch every five days. So this is one of the constructs we use to build a strong team. Well, you can imagine the interview better hint at this because it's a very different way to work. So when we interview, we bring a group of people together and we pair them with other candidates. And we switch those pairs three times, 20 minutes each, to see how they behave with other human beings. And then we give them the weirdest instructions ever. You know, Gene and Justin, if we were interviewing you, let's say you came in, you were sitting together, we would say, Mateen, your job is to try and get Justin a second interview. Make your partner look good. They're, by the way, he's competing for the same position you are. Help the person sitting next to you succeed. Oh, I like that. Wow. This is good kindergarten skills. Do you play well with others? Do you share things you know? Are you willing to support another human being? Well, this is the way we expect you to work. Why wouldn't we interview this way? Why wouldn't we begin teaching your culture from the moment of first contact? Yeah, just listening to you talk about the way that your company approaches these things and and the vision that you clearly have. um, I'm, I'm curious what impact your culture has on not just business internally, but from an external standpoint. Because one thing that's really interesting about you and your company, Rich, is that at least pre-COVID, you had thousands of people every single year asking if they could come see Menlo and see what your culture is all about. So I'm, I'm curious if you can share with us um, just kind of what impact that has had because you know in our business, it's interesting. A lot of our clients will, will come to our office pre-COVID and they will be blown away by so many things. But the number one thing they leave with is that culture. And they say, I wanna take a piece of that back to my office and spread that amongst my team. So what, what's been your experience with that uh, with your clients? Well, I think the idea of culture, it's not a new one. <clears throat> Business books have been written about it for decades now. Uh, I imagine there's at least 15 minutes in any MBA program that talks about culture. <laughs> it says, hey, you should think about this, right? But if you become a serious student of culture, if you start reading books, if you go to conferences, if you talk to others, you listen to great podcasts, I'm pretty sure there comes a point, sounds like you experience it like we do, where the student of culture says, you know what, I wish I could at least go see an example of the things I'm reading about. Could, could I just see one in operation? I, I mean, I get the general concepts, but but let me just go watch it one, right? And I think that's why thousands of people a year come to see us from all over the world. Literally, they get on airplanes from every corner of the planet, come to Ann Arbor, book a hotel room, come to our office. Of course, that all ended a year ago, almost exactly. Um, and we decided to start offering virtual tours of the virtual menu. We started that in June. We've already had visitors from 49 countries and 37 states since June. There is clearly a hunger out there in the world for this idea of what does it take to build an intentionally joyful culture? I love that. I love that. And it's funny because I'm sitting here thinking and um, I'm I'm laughing about 
the interview process. I'm still thinking about what you said. You said make the other person look good. I, I'm saying, Richard, I, 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 I stayed up all night to make myself look good. I've talked to myself in the mirror. And so <laughs> I think I like that tactic because I mean, that got to totally like catch some of those people off guard. But if you're really a genuine person and you're all about the team, it'll be easy. To, it'll be easy to do. So I like that. Um, let me ask you that because we're talking about culture. So let me ask you this. When did that click, the light click on about the importance of culture? Did you always have that? Or did you play sports growing up? Did you have parents? Like what, parents that was big on, like when did it, the light click on about culture? You know, pain is a great teacher. <laughs> um, and I had at least a dozen years of abject pain in my career where I just thought the results could be way better than what I was personally experiencing. And so I became a student. I, I probably wouldn't have used the word culture back in the days that I started reading books. What I was really interested in is just leadership, management, organizational design, all those things. Like, how do we organize the people better? So I started reading books by Tom Peters in Search of Excellence, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization, Peter Drucker's books on management. All of these books were telling me some companies have achieved it. Some companies have gotten there. You know, you haven't, you've got to figure out, and they didn't tell you exactly how they got there, you know, but you started seeing hints of this kind of thing. But the there was a moment, it, just such a, just a mind-bending, uh, life-altering moment for me. And it was when I took my youngest daughter, Sarah, into work with me when I was a newly minted VP. I think I had the job for a few weeks. Ann Arbor Public Schools has this program. This is take your child to work, let them see you work. Maybe it'll inspire them on a career of their own. So I brought my eight-year-old daughter in with me to watch the VP work. Can you imagine a more boring day? <laughs> Oh, my dad does email all day. You know, how exciting. I can't wait to get out in the work world. Um, and so at the end of the day, I asked her, I said, sir, you know, your teacher's going to ask you tomorrow. So I better ask you now, what, what did you learn today? What did you see? Now, she has spent the entire day at my task table with coloring books, crayons and stickers. Right. And so my assumption was, oh, that was interesting. You know, nothing. I don't know. No. She delivered a line that I will never forget. She said, what I learned, Dad, is you're really important here. I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, what I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, talk about out of the mouths of babes, right? I mean, here she mm -hmm. is, eight years old, and, and she has just stripped me clean. Right now, she was very proud by saying that I was instantly mortified. I had built that hero based structure and I was the number one hero. And, and quite frankly, knowing that that meant overtime for me, because I'm only going to as this organization grows, which was the expectation, I'm going to get busier. I'm going to be working more overtime. And I'm looking across the table at this eight year old thinking to myself, if you're not careful, you're going to miss the best part of being a dad. And I didn't want that. Mm. And so that moment, even though I'm not sure right then I knew exactly what I was looking for, what I knew was 
the change had to begin here. I needed to become a different kind of leader. None of the rest of that was going to change before I changed. And then two years later, I had another sort of click moment when I read a book by a guy named Kent Beck on an unusually named style of organizing software teams. He called it extreme programming. He actually talked about this idea of putting two programmers together, working side by side on the same task at the same time. And that book combined with a video I saw from Ted Koppel's Nightline and a company out in California called IDEO. And it literally gave me the clearest picture I had ever had in my life about what a new culture could look like. And that was 1999. And I've never looked back since. And, uh, and, and I will just simply say, part of this journey for me has been very, very selfish. I wanted a company, I wanted an environment that brought me joy, too. It just happens that it does it for a lot of other people, too, because I don't think you can do it ever by yourself. It, it's a great story. Um, and you hit it on the head, Rich, with, with, with kids. I mean, so some of the things that, you know, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, some of the things that come out of ma- their mouths, it's just like, yeah. wow, you know what? You've, you've got a point there. Uh, so, so it is, it's amazing what we can be, uh, what we can learn from those who are much younger than us. Um, I want to, so, so this whole notion of, of creating joy in the workplace, uh, is, is one aspect of your business, but I want to, I want to ask you about, uh, your company's mission statement of sorts. Uh, and that is to end human suffering as it relates to technology, which is interesting in itself because, Again, you, you ask somebody about human suffering and technology might not be one of the first two or three things that they mention, but with your company, and especially in this world we live in now, I mean, after all, we're, we're recording this podcast on Zoom, um, tech, technology is a staple in all of our lives. So tell us about uh, that statement, how it came to be and, and how it kind of uh, is amplified throughout what you do every single day. Yeah, a lot of people had asked me way back when, when I started writing these books, they said, Rich, where does the joy come from for you? And I'll be honest, when I first thought about it, I thought about, I I grew up in Macomb County. I'm a pure Michigan kid. I touched a computer for the first time in 1971 as a freshman in high school, and it was like mind blowing to me. And I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my day. So I I think I unwittingly said in the early days, it's about the technological stuff. But when I really pressed, like, why is this so important to me? Why would I talk about ending human suffering in the world as it relates to technology? I realized there was a different story in my life. And it was one that occurred a few years earlier with my mom and dad. They bought a new shelving unit, like the kind you'd get at Ikea today. It was out in the garage in a box. And, um, and they went out to dinner and a movie. My 10-year-old, I was 10 years old at the time. I was on my own. And I went out in the garage and I built that shelving unit. I was so proud of myself. I mean, it was like 50 pieces of wood, 200 little nuts, bolts, and screws. And I couldn't wait to show them when I got home. And then it dawned on me, oh, Rich, you built it in the garage. They want it in the living room, right? So I literally inched that thing out the front of the garage, down the sidewalk, through the family room, the kitchen, all by myself. My 10-year-old memory says I didn't harm it a bit. I set up dad's books, mom's knickknacks, wired up the stereo, and when they walked in the door, 
I had my mom's favorite album playing and she cried. That's joy. Joy is serving others with the work of your heart, your hands and your mind. And for me, that's what I was being denied. I will tell you, anybody who does technical work for a living, you can talk about your title, the cool building we work in, fact that it's a short commute, or I get to learn interesting new stuff. But at the end of the day, there is only one thing that delights a technical person. And that is to see someone react to their creation like my mom reacted to that bookshelf. To say, thank you. You made my life better because of what you did, right? And I was denied that most of the time because, you know, look, we've all gotten so used to sucky technology, we think it's just supposed to be that way, right? Think about the stupid chip-reading credit card machines we all use, right? I mean, the little chevron blue lights that are like, swipe me, swipe me, swipe me. So you swipe and the person, the clerk says, oh, I'm sorry, sir, that's chip-reader. Oh, then why is the little blue light? I don't know. But you got to stick your chip and then you don't put it in far enough. And then you're like, oh, sir, you got to pull it out, put it back. You're like, okay, this used to be a pleasurable activity. Now it's causing me pain, right? And then it blinks at you. Don't remove card. Don't remove card. Don't remove card. And then finally it changes subtly to remove card. You don't see it because it was so subtle. And then the machine starts yelling at you. And you're like, oh, no, everybody thinks I'm a stupid user, right? I mean, think my industry invented that term. You know, you guys are just stupid users. If you were as smart as me, this would all make sense. Like, why do we need to be as smart as you? Couldn't you make the computer as smart as me, right? And so all of this, we've gotten so used to, it feels normal. But I will tell you, if you start, just spend the next 24 hours in your life watching how many technological things you get frustrated with, where you just want to grab the computer and say, why does it work like this? It doesn't have to be that way. And so we created an entire company with that myopic focus. We had to invent a whole new practice to do this. We call it high-tech anthropology. And the reason we call it that is we have to study the people we're going to serve. And we have to study them as anthropologists would in their native environment. Learn their words, their vocabulary. How many times do you have to change your vocabulary because the computer calls it something different than you would? Wouldn't it be neat if the computer used your words rather than the words of the programmers. And so empathy, compassion, understanding, and ultimately ending their suffering so that later they say, I love the software. That's what we're aiming for. <clears throat> I, I love that. And it's funny because I, you know, I, when I talk to leaders, I, I, I tend to say, you know, simplify it. You know, it's not how smart you are. Can you make me understand it? You know, sometimes you're delivering a message and it's not um, registering um, with who you're leading. Then I, to me, that's your fault. You know, simplify all the great coaches. I have a sports background. So all the great coaches I've been around or even great uh, leaders in business um, are the ones that could simplify it and make it easy uh, for the people they talk to. And it's funny, um, another thing, I was laughing when you talked about when you built the um, the shelf and you had the record plan and you look for that validation because I, I dabbled and dabbled in the music industry and I had an artist that I supported and he would make songs and he waited on my reaction. Yeah. And so, and 
And he was great. And I'm thinking like, dude, what do you care what what I care? But I, I realized at an early, you know, at an early point that he he looked for that validation, you know, and that kept him going. Well, yeah, I mean, if if you create music, which is in many ways a form of technology, right? Um, it and nobody likes it but you. Okay, maybe it's technically sophisticated. Maybe you could explain to somebody who understands music composition why this is a mind-blowing invention. But most musicians I'm familiar with, they want people to be calling the radio station and say, play this song, put it on Spotify, download it, go to the concerts, stand up and cheer and sing every word like you know it. I mean, I can probably... You know, you pick five Elton John albums, and I think I could not only have every word of every song, but the right inflection points at every word and that sort of thing. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing how much of our heart and soul we give to things we love like that. And music's a great example of that. Rich, your uh, your your culture is clearly very well thought out. Uh, it's very very intentional. There's a lot of strategy behind it. One very interesting thing, though, about the way Menlo operates is that you love to encourage your people to try things out, to experiment, if you will. The notion of take action versus take a meeting. And it kind of, to me, what it seems like is you're kind of taking some of that, that quote unquote red tape or that bureaucracy that, that exists in so many companies. And you're saying, look, we don't need to do that. Let's just try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, oh, well, at least we tried. Uh, tell us where that uh, belief system came from and what, that, uh, what the impact of that is on your, on your company. You know, if, if we started a basic construct, we're human. And we assume, based on our humanity, we're going to make mistakes, right? That's just a natural human thing. So we can either make small mistakes that we correct quickly or we can make really big, slow, expensive mistakes that'll eventually kill us. And typically the big, slow, expensive mistakes occur in a culture of fear. The fear that, you know, somebody's demanding something be done exactly right on time and so on. And everybody's afraid to share how it's going because if it isn't going well, I'm going to I'm going to hopefully kick this can under the road, shove it under the rug. And when they finally figure out it's not working, uh, they won't even be able to identify that I was the one who made the mistake, right? So we have this simple constructive memo. Number one is make mistakes faster. Again, in the spirit of you're going to make mistakes, so let's make small ones quickly. And then the other one is rather than debating endlessly in meetings and forming committees to write policies about things, let's take action. Let's run the experiment. And part of this has to do with creating an environment where people aren't afraid to try things. If we can, as leaders, if we can pump enough fear out of the room, we keep everybody who works for us in that most human part of our brain, right? That the part that gives us creativity, imagination, innovation, and invention. You know, there's a lot of talk these days, I'm guessing even in your world, what you guys do you know, about AI. Could AI replace so many of our people? AI will never replace creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. Just won't. We need more of our humans these days in our businesses, not less of them. 
in a fear-based management system that says, don't you dare make a mistake. And if you do, you know, it's going to affect your employment with us. It's going to affect your next annual performance review. We're going to count your mistakes versus everybody else. And the one who made the fewest mistakes is the one who gets the highest raise. All those crazy notions that we've watched for decades in poor management systems is coming home to haunt us now because the companies who have a take action versus take a meeting kind of posture are the ones that are succeeding. And the other ones, the competitors are being left behind, even if they're big, even if they're massive, right? They're being left behind. I mean, look at Sears. (laughs) Sorry, guys, you had what over a hundred years to figure out how to do this. And, you know, and Amazon first came out in, you know, locally here in Ann Arbor, there was a, there was a, really big operation that just evaporated before our very eyes. It's called Borders Books. You probably remember their bookstores. Oh, yeah. I love them. Amazon's first website launched in 1993. Borders went out of business. I think their last, you know, court filing was like 2010. I mean, they had 17 years to figure out how to respond to Borders. What was going on there? Why could they not adjust? Why could they not adapt? I would declare they lost their mojo around creativity, imagination, invention, and innovation. And this is this is an existential threat for all companies these days, right? I don't care who you are. I mean, even Amazon has that challenge. I like that. And uh, I like what you said, Richard, and I love that approach. Uh, and what I'm thinking uh, is empowering, empowerment, you know what's coming out of that building confidence and others, and 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 I, I like I always talk you know on our podcast about my sports background and even in sports I played with coaches that had uh, players they were scared to go out and make mistakes and whenever I played a game like that I made a ton of mistakes <laughs> you know and then I look at the coach who just let me play uh, you know let me use my creativity he made a couple of mistakes along the line but I use I tend to play good around folk like that so I hope our listeners are really paying attention especially if you're leading people uh, I mean don't be afraid um, to empower them you know give them let them screw up you know that's I always say <laughs> the one thing about a mistake is okay now we know how not to do it Mm-hmm. You know, and then you then you build on it and you move forward. So I'm glad you said that, Richard, because I think that's going to be very uh, impactful for our uh, listeners, not only our listeners, but people that lead others. And, and, I, and, you know, you think of a sports context. At the very least, you know, when you're at practice or you're in a game, you can see the whole team. Most businesses, you can't do that. Right? There's all this subtle stuff going on in conference rooms or down that corridor or on the second floor and everybody else on the third floor. And you can't see the whole team operating. And you, so you you got to work harder at it. And not saying sports is easy. But I think when you start separating your people and pushing them out in physical different locations and so on, it's even harder to get that sense of relationship, of playing off of one another, of trusting other people on the team that if you do falter, they're going to pick up after you and all that sort of thing. Because if you go out onto the court and, you know, and, and everybody else in the team is like, watch this. The team's going to really screw up. And we're going to let them. 
we might even lose the game, but that's okay. At least we taught him a lesson, right? I was like, really? <laughs> like, why are we here? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, and so, but so many businesses operate like that, especially the ones that force rank their people from top to bottom and then cut the lowest 10% every year. It's like, I don't have to outrun the tiger. I just have to outrun you. I can make you look bad just by saying something awful in the in the coffee room loud enough so the CEO can overhear it. You know, like, oh, you hear that project Mateen's working on? I heard it's in trouble. He seems really worried. Has anybody checked in with him? You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to do. Um, you know, Rich, it's it's so fascinating. You know, this uh, this company and culture that you've created. Um, you know, we talked about it earlier. Uh, the thousands of people who who ask to come to Ann Arbor uh, every single year to see it for themselves and and try and you know take a piece back to to their office, um, you know this platform you have now and and even you said even during COVID you're giving two or three presentations a week to people in different states in different countries. Did did you always? No, this was going to become a part of what it is you're doing. You know, you obviously you you're running a business. You have a, a software technology company. You know, you you have clients, but you also have this this platform now, which is you know part of the reason why you're here with us, um, in which so many people want to want to learn from you and get advice from you. Did you always know that something like this was a possibility, or has it has it come as a surprise to you? I'm not sure. I would have believe that the longevity could be there that for 20 years, thousands of people would come every year to see us and, and it keeps going up in number. Um, but when we crafted that mission statement back in earliest days to end human suffering in the world's and release technology, we knew that was bigger than us. We couldn't do it by ourselves. So we said, we're gonna teach others how this works in case they wanna carry that joy home with them and start improving the world. And, you know, and, and obviously a lot of people who come to visit our technical teams, but nowhere near exclusively. We get a tremendous number of educators who come in and they plead with us. They say, please tell the world this is what school should look like, right? And so we have a wide impact. I will tell you, it brings joy to our team to know we can improve the lives of people at work. Just not because of some technical thing we've done, but because how we behave towards one another, how we've crafted our culture, what ideas do we have? And I will tell you, I mean, there is a component of this where we learn just from the questions people ask. Sometimes somebody comes and visits says, hey, have you ever thought about trying this? And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Or the people say, hey, you know, it, it, especially when you write a book, it's amazing how many books people send to me now. Rich, I love your ideas. This book has some great additional ideas. And I love that. You know, all of us have to stay in student mode. We got to be learning all the time. I mean, this is a natural human thing. If we're not learning, we're dying. And so by creating this environment where we're constantly coming in contact with people from different cultures, different countries, different ideas, different backgrounds, different histories, and they're all, I mean, this isn't like a presentation. These tours are very interactive. They're, they're, they're meant to be hands-on. You know, they're going around. They're not sitting in a conference room watching a PowerPoint of the Menlo that's 30 feet away. No, they're out in the room, walking around, talking to our people, seeing how we work, seeing our visual management artifacts, all that sort of thing. Man, this is some good stuff. And <clears throat> I'm, sitting, I'm playing devil's advocate right now because 
I'm sure we have some listeners, someone saying, oh, man, Richard, what a great guy. Oh, my God. He just helped so many people. And there's somebody saying, well, wait a minute. This guy is crazy. Why would he open the door and let people, you know, in to some of his secrets, you know? (laughs) So, you know, what would you have to say to that person? Maybe I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think, number one, if you could come in and learn everything about us in in 90 minutes or a couple hours or even five days, we're probably not all that interesting anyways. Menlo goes very deep. Second is we're always a, we're a work in progress ourselves. You know, you could copy Menlo today and that's not even our intention. We're not trying to tell people, hey, look, we found the one true way of work. I mean, no, you gotta, you gotta customize it for your own intentions and your own business model and everything else and you know your own unique approach to business and your history and all that sort of thing. So we're not trying to tell anybody they should make themselves look like us. It's just simply, again, back to what I said earlier, wouldn't it be neat to go see a living, breathing example of a culture that works and one that you can speak to so effectively because everyone understands it. I mean, I'll I'll give you the the weirdest version of this is just fascinating. We had some visitors in to visit Menlo and they came from an automotive manufacturing firm down in Tennessee and they were spending the day with us and they were really focused on this idea of pairing two people together, right? It's just, for most, that's like kind of mind blowing, especially for introverted software engineers. Do they really like to work together, blah, blah, blah. Exact same day, we had a class going on in our in our culture. We we teach a one day class, intro to the Menlo Way, and there were a bunch of people from different companies there. And there were two programmers in that room who were just adamant. No way, no how. I would never like to. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard. I can't even believe I'm wasting a day here doing this. And they were just poking at this all day long, which is fine. Right. We don't assume that A, that you should work like us and B, of course, you should have questions. That's why you're here. But at a certain point, I asked them, people in the class of these two guys in particular, I said, would you like to try it? I'm like, what do you mean? I said, tell you what, why don't you step out of the class? I'll arrange one of our internal projects, not for a customer work, but something we're working on ourselves. And you just go pair for two hours with my team. And now for them, they were like, well, okay. Yeah, sure. Why not? Two hours. What's the big deal, right? So unbeknownst to me, this is the way the team orchestrated. For the first hour, two of our people and those two paired, you know, split the pairs, you know. So one Menlonian, one of these students. And they were working in a technology they'd never touched before. And then my team does the crazy thing. Let's run the experiment, right? And they paired the two people from the class with each other in a technology they'd never worked in before. And they got some stuff done in the lunch hour. This was like between 11 and 1. So later, I'm interacting with these visitors who are in from Tennessee in a different conference room. who didn't know anything about what was going on during the day. And they were like, tell me how this pairing thing works. So I said, well, hold on a second. And I went and I got these two guys from the class. Okay. Now, I didn't tell them they were in a class. The, the visitors assumed I had grabbed two of my most senior people from Menlo. 
And I didn't know what they were going to say because, you know, I knew that just a few hours before they were like, this is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Right. So I didn't know how they were going to respond. So I ran the experiment within the experiment. And, um, and so, uh, so I bring them into the conference room and I said, Hey guys, these guys have some questions about pairing. Would you be willing to answer a few questions? About them? And they're like, yeah, sure. Now, again, neither one of them knew <laughs> that they didn't know what the situation was. And these guys, well, let me tell you about pairing. I mean, when I first heard about it, I was very skeptical. Then once I got to experience it, it was unbelievable. I mean, I got so much out of the pairing experience. I learned new technology and, you know, and they're just like, they're like poster children for pairing, right? And at the end, <laughs> you might imagine the question that the visitors had. They said, oh, well, how long have you guys worked at Memo? He said, oh, we don't work here. What? Yeah, we're over in that class over there. We just had a chance to experience it for a couple of hours over here. These guys were like. And I said, so all those complaints where this won't work and you won't. When did you have those? Oh, about 930 this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I mean, the fact matter is, if we're not willing to try those kind of crazy things, yes, then we are crazy. There's no question. We're just crazy in a way that I think produces good results. (laughs) Uh, What a a story of of running the experiment and and the experiment working out perfectly. Uh, Rich, I I know that you have so many people who ask you for your advice on how they too can create a culture that is joyful. Um, You've got a great analogy about, about an airplane as it relates to this particular topic. I want you to share that with our listeners because I think there is so much value in this for anybody out there, whether you are a leader or not, whatever it is you're doing, this this is really great stuff. So yes, the, the metaphor I draw here is one between the forces at work on an airplane that most of us are familiar with, even if you don't have a pilot's license like me, and the forces at work on a human organization. So airplanes, in order to get off the ground and fly reliably, they have this force of lift that has to overcome the force of weight and gravity. There's a force of the propeller jet engine that pulls us forward called thrust and the force of drag that holds us back. And in order for that plane to get off the ground, you better have more lift and thrust than weight and drag. So what is the analogous uh, forces that work on a human organization? That lift of human energy, probably one of the most squandered energy sources on the planet. You can typically walk into a company and evaluate for yourself is there palpable human energy in this company or not, right? Just on how they talk, what the atmosphere is like, how quiet it is, the weight that holds us down, that weight of bureaucracy, meeting load, uh, the idea that, you know, we better have a certain level of executives from that point up in the organization, they should be human sacrifices to meetings, right? And then the thrust of purpose, this externally focused purpose focused on two important questions, who do we serve and what would delight look like for them? And the drag of fear that holds us back. This idea that, you know, and I will tell you for the first 20 years of my career, I was taught to lead with fear. And then I became really good at it because I had been brought up in that environment. And I'm not talking about the fear that keeps us alive or keeps our companies alive. I'm talking about the fear that is used 
artificially in order to motivate people. You know, the raised eyebrow at a meeting. Uh, hey, how's it going? What you working on? Are you almost done? Are you coming in this weekend? <laughs> I thought you were the guy to do this. I might have been wrong. Um, all that kind of crap. And so there are many things we can do in this world to improve this, but ultimately for leaders to get their little organizational aircraft off the ground every day, you better decrease that fear. You probably never get rid of all of it. Shrink the bureaucracy, increase your focus of attention on the human energy of the team. Make sure everyone understands the clear externally focused purpose. Who do you serve? What would delight look like for them? And if you do this in the right way, every single day, your little organizational aircraft will get off the ground reliably, just like an airplane does. Oh, How about man. that for a flight plan, Mateen? <clears throat> oh man, that was so impressive. Listen, I, I got better today. You know, I, I'm sitting here happy, man, because I, I, I try to get better every day. And I know today, man, just sitting here with you, man, I got better, man. That, that was impressive. Thank Definitely. You. I loved it. For, uh, for our listeners out there who want to check out uh, Rich's books, again, they are called Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. And I guess, Rich, they, they could still reach out about a virtual tour, right? I mean, I'm sure people are going to be lining up, you know, hit, lighting up the phones wanting to book their, uh, their appointment to come out to Menlo when you guys are, are back to doing the tours. But, but the virtual tours are still going on, right? Yep, they are. Just go to our website uh, right on the homepage. says tours and workshops. The tours are free. They're 90 minutes. We do two to three of them a week. So you can just sign up. Well, uh, this, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, loved having you on as a guest. Uh, appreciate all of your insights. And I know that uh, all of our listeners do as well. And, and I'm really happy because I know now that uh, the next time Mateen and I are in a job interview, he's just going to pump my tires. You know, he's going to do, do his very best to get me hired and it's going to be a win-win. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything Rich Sheridan. We truly appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me guys. This was fun. To make sure you never miss an episode of Power Forward, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and leave us a review. And look for another new episode coming your way two weeks from now featuring more inspirational stories of success. I'm Justin White. We'll see you next time on Power Forward.